She became a Broadway star by, ironically, playing the scheming understudy Eve Harrington in applause after having appeared as a standby and replacement in the original production of Cabaret. Her varied stage credits include the original Barefoot in the Park, Shakespeare's Henry IV in Central Park, the Broadway musical Rex, William Finn's A New Brain and Horton Foote's Dividing the Estate for Lincoln Center Theater, and most recently, Love, Loss, and What I Wore at the West Side Arts. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I'm happy to have the opportunity to meet Penny Fuller. I'm happy to be here. Now, Love, Loss, and What I Wore, for those who've not had a chance to see it, and it seems to be multiplying around the country and around yes, the world. around the world, I um, Is a series of monologues of women talking about their lives and their relationship to the things in their lives and what they mean. You play in the one track that is a continuous through-line story – while the other four women you share the stage with are doing different anecdotes and, right. and different stories. What is it like? You've now done it with a couple of casts. Yes, I'm in my second guest. What's it like doing a show in which you do not really interact with the other four women but share the stage with them the entire time? Well, I'm the mistress of ceremonies, sort of. I'm the, I play the woman who wrote the book. The little book, the little book that was probably next door to the cash register at at Barnes & Noble, one of those little books. I mean, it was a a specialty book called What Love Lost and What I Wore, written by a woman named Eileen Beckerman. And and Nora Ephron and Delia Ephron and Karen Carpenter, the director, have been mulling over this and trying to figure out what to do with it for several years. And they finally came up with this presentation, I guess. So I am the real Eileen Beckerman telling the story of how I started thinking about clothes and the drawing of clothes and what that evoked in my memory. And then they took other women's stories and that's what those other women are. I do interact with them, i.e. I laugh with them, I laugh at them, they laugh at me, we... But I don't have one of – I am just constantly me where they are different characters. You're right about that. And it's it's an interrupted monologue in the sense that yes. you're, you're telling this through line of a story. It's the late motif. Like, late motif? Does your performance change at all as the cast has changed? Or because is, if you say you're really – you're laughing with them or, or you really just – you just get to watch a different show when you're not talking. My performance changes in that the way I listen changes because I hear new things from them or new rhythms or new um, emphases, emphases, and different ways that they do their parts. But basically my story that, that I speak is about the same, except I'm always trying new things, and, and it, it sort of – modulates with the way the audience reacts. I mean, if they're on, they're kind of a certain kind of an audience, they'll get certain things that maybe the audience the night before did not get. Hmm. So it'll vary in that, in that life changes with the very, the very tangible, palpable stuff that an audience brings in the air to a performer. You sort of take it and mold and play with it like putty it, it, each day. 
Now, as I said, there's rotating cast here in New York. We've seen a different cast every mm-hmm. month. Some people have repeated. Some mm-hmm. people have continued for a couple of months in mm-hmm. a row. Because it's a format a lot of people are familiar with either from, say, vagina, vagina monologues mm-hmm. or love letters mm-hmm. before it, um, how much rehearsal actually goes into preparing to do this show? Because you're sitting there with the script on – a music stand. Maybe you've learned it. Maybe you haven't. Not a lot. Um, I think it's very interesting when you say maybe you've learned it, maybe you haven't. I came in on a Friday because I have to draw, which I don't do very well. So they had to teach me how to do that. And I worked with the director. Then she had to go to California. So the two, uh, the other cast, I mean, the rest of the cast came in on Monday and Tuesday. We worked two full days, Monday and Tuesday, two 10-hour days, Monday and Tuesday, with her, with Karen's associate. And um, then we had two, a matinee and an evening, and we had an opening on Thursday. Matinee and evening on Wednesday and open on Thursday. It's very little rehearsal. Hmm. It's amazing. Now, two of the girls in the first cast that I did it, two of the women, memorized it. And I, it's very interesting. It's, a, I think, a different experience for the audience if somebody is saying it without looking at the book as though they're reading it, even though by now I kind of know it. I still look at the book. But the experience of reading, of having somebody read something to you, and as they read it, become involved in what they're saying, in the memories of what they're saying, is quite different from somebody just from the get-go looking right at you and telling the story. Hmm. I think it's quite different, and I don't know which is better, or I don't mean that maybe one is better than the other, but I do know that it's different. This cast, everybody's still looking at the book. Hmm. But 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 we know what we're saying, but we are reading it. Huh. Interesting. So so the feeling of it will change with every yeah. cast and exactly. with, with, with exactly. each and the performer's rhythms. approach. I'm I'm finding and, and as I say, this is partly because I'm listening because I have so much time to listen. I'm looking the younger people have a different rhythm than say we have in humor. Hmm. There's a different rhythm. There's a different presentation of humor. Somehow it it's still funny, but it's a different rhythm. There are different pronunciations. I notice that certain uh, certain age and younger pronounce words like M I R R O R. How do you pronounce that? Mirror. They say mirror. Hmm. Um, how do you pronounce? I'm, I'm asking you so that I'm not. Um, D I D N apostrophe T. Didn't. Didn't. This is contemporary um, Hmm. vernacular now. And so there'll be something like uh, I'm trying to think. um, um, No, of course, I can't think something when I want to. But you're talking about pronunciations, which is very different than rhythms. But rhythms, I'm going back to rhythms. uh, oh, why can't I think of it now that I've, I've brought this whole subject up? But uh, they, there would be – there was a, a former person would sort of say the line and then sort of react after it on the line. And the mm-hmm. laugh would be there, whereas someone of another generation or another perhaps region, maybe New York, would do the thing, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and that's the joke. And there's no after thing. 
hmm. on the joke. Um, I, probably it wouldn't be that noticeable to anybody else, but because I'm watching it night after night and I'm finding I'm saying to myself, oh, you're really listening. You're not pretending like you're listening. Um, I, I'm noticing things like that. I'm noticing things uh, in comedy rhythms where one person will do it, blah, 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 blah. No way in hell am I going to do blah, blah, blah. And the next one will say, no way, no, no way in hell am I going to do that. Well, I mean, it sounds minimal, but it's it's major in a way, and they both get laughs. But it's a different it's a different rhythm. Well, since, as you say, with just a couple of days of admittedly lengthy rehearsal, it's still about what the individual performer chooses right. ultimately, rather than having spent a week or. God knows four or five weeks when you rehearse a show and find the rhythms together and have an agreed upon mm-hmm. method of approaching it and you have a director who may want certain things punched mm-hmm. in a certain way. So, Well, yes, and also it's also a matter of uh, um, this is less – even though each woman in the other monologues has different characters that she plays – it's still kind of the personality of the actress who's doing it as opposed to this is, you know, the woman from dividing the estate who's from wherever it is in Texas, Horton Foot, Texas land, Horton Foot land in Texas or, or Sally Bowles from London. Mm-hmm. It's the personality of the actress. It's a stamp on it too. Right. Well, let's talk about the personality of the actress Penny Fuller. Um, I've read that you claim dual hometowns, Mm -hmm. New York and North Carolina. How do you have two hometowns? Well, I was born in North Carolina. My father was in law school at at the University of North Carolina. But but he was from New York and they moved back to New York. And then this was many, 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 many years ago when people were divorced – And so, you know, you were sort of – it was not – there weren't that many people who were divorced in those days. You're saying that the way, you know, people would say, you know, when people suddenly talk about it, they say, cancer. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, you did in those days, Mm -hmm. you know. And so – and I did the split thing where I would live sometimes with my mother and sometimes with my father. And so that went on for quite some time. And then when it came to be high schoolish times, I had to choose – between my father wanted me to go to to school in Europe in one of those you know what do you call them boarding schools mm-hmm. and my mother had just married the first love of her life in and was living in North Carolina and I decided that I wanted to have a normal life and be a cheerleader and be you know all that kind of stuff so I said I wanted to go back and live with her so I got to have a kind of a I've had an urban life and a small-town life, a small-town southern life. <laughs> but I was never going to end up down there. Well, I hear I you doing an accent. Did you have an accent? Oh, or did you yeah. Have, even though you were going back and forth Absolutely. between the locales. I'd have a Yankee accent, they'd say. And when I get to the south and in the south, in the north, they'd say I have a southern accent. Hmm. And I pick it up. I mean, if you had a southern accent, I would get more southern now whether I meant to or not. And if I talk much about Lumberton, North Carolina, and the people down there, and Jimmy Neal Townsend, and those people that I knew, I'll get it back just talking about uh-huh. it. So in North Carolina, was there theater exposure for you in high school? Was that something you were already moving towards? Well, I took dance. 
I was going to be a ballerina anyway. But I did do the the lead in the French play for Mary Stevens in Lumberton High School, the médecin, Le Médecin Malgré Lui, <laughs> doctor in spite of himself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then I got the lead in the senior play. Sarah Hamilton, our English teacher, gave me the lead. I really wanted the second lead because she was the funny one, but she thought it would be better for me if I had the lead since I had decided I wanted to be an actress. <clears throat> So when you went off to college? Northwestern. And was dance still on the agenda or had it switched? No, by that time, I'd come up here to New York in some summers and studied ballet in the summers. But by that time, I decided I wanted to be an actress more than than a dancer. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Northwestern, which had the great legendary teacher at that time, Alvina Krauss, who – those of us who studied with her were, and survived will say was the greatest influence. And I think probably my greatest talent is finding great teachers. I've had four or five of the greatest teachers on the planet, and I think that's uh, – I think it's a talent to find the great teachers. Well, it's interesting. Alvina Krauss's name has come up more than once in just the past couple of weeks. Oh. So tell me about both the influence – and why you had to survive. I think she thought that if – that the world of the theater and the, – the theater and show business, which in those days were two different things, that in order to survive it, you had to have some tough skin. So she she didn't let you get away with anything. Now, when I got to Northwestern, I was a transfer student. I'd gone to St. Mary's Junior College in Raleigh for one year, and I didn't like it anymore. So I went to Northwestern so I could really study the theater. And uh, I was not allowed to take acting the first year because I had all those – Pre-course, those, those, those things like with. intro to the theater and intro oh. to build all the sets and stuff like that. So I was one of the few people, and probably the only one, who really studied with Dr. Schneiderman and Miss Krause. You usually were Dr. Schneiderman or Miss Krause, but I somehow worked it, so I got both of them. But I was uh, so I went to um, audit Miss Krause's classes. And uh, one day I'm sitting there watching it, and all the girls were in my dorm would would throw up before they had to go up on the stage for Miss Cross because she was so scary. And I'd just sit there because I wasn't taking it. I was just auditing it. And then one day she said, Fuller, what are you doing? I said, I'm just auditing. And she said, well, you'll have to get up and do something. Hmm. Oh, it was scary. So you hadn't had time to throw up? No, no, I hadn't had time to throw up. But she – Eventually, I had to take her classes, and the first one I took was Greek drama, and uh, so I got up with uh, one girl, and I got up and did a Greek chorus thing. Then when it was over, we were so relieved. I still remember the lines. And then she said, all right, it's time for midterms. Fuller, what are you going to do? I said, well, I, she said, you'll do Cassandra. I said, yes, ma'am, Miss Krause. So I went home and I looked at it and I thought, I can't do this. It said, I remember it started, oh, flame and pain that sweeps me once again. My God, Apollo, the pain. And I thought, I can't do this. And finally I had to get up because, I mean, I was taking the course and I started. And I thought what she would do if she didn't like it is she, she'd say, cut, flunk, next. <laughs> and sometimes she'd say, cut, flunk, as you were setting up a scene because she like could already tell. Yeah, exactly. So I got up there and I started. I thought, it'll be over soon. She'll cut me and then I can just get out of here. So I said, oh, flame and pain that sweeps me once again. 
nothing. My God, Apollo, the pain, nothing. I had to keep going. I thought, oh, get me. And then I heard, cut, and no flunk. Hmm. So she sent the two biggest guys. Now, Cassandra's the one who can see the future and can't do anything about it. So she sent two of the biggest guys in class to pull down on my shoulders to try to pull me to ground to the ground. She said, now you pull against that. And she said, now do you feel that? I said, yes, ma'am, Miss Cress, yes, ma'am. And then she took me and slung me around like a, you know, sling the statue or whatever that game was till I was dizzy, said, this is what it does. And she said, and, uh, and then she said, now keep doing it. And she broke down all of my inhibitions and my my. Things I was sobbing and I was doing it and and she said now now I thought you could do it hmm. and then she went on and something in that breaking down of my inhibitions of thinking I can't do all this and I that was the day I started to become an actress. Now would I be correct that the program did not focus on musical theater? That no, that was, not at that all. That was not thought of as a, as a field no. of study in those days. No, there was a show called The Wamu Show, mm-hmm. which we Very all famous. did. Tony Roberts and I were dance partners in The Wamu Show. Hmm. And Tony and I and Paula and Dick Benjamin, Paula Prentice and Dick Benjamin and Larry Pressman and Marsha Rod and Stuart Hagman and Marshall Mason were all there together. Wow. At the same day. Yeah, it was, she was, she attracted and the People who fell by the wayside probably wouldn't have had the – she had to test your passion and your mettle, you hmm. know. So when – after this boot camp, mm-hmm. yes. did you immediately set off for New York? Well, if you were lucky, you got to be invited by Miss Krause to come to her summer stock theater, which if you did that, was uh, – we did nine, uh, eight plays in nine weeks and built all the sets and all the costumes – and we would rehearse. We would improv the two weeks away play in the morning, and rehearse next week's play in the afternoon, and do this play this week uh, at night. And so, where was the theater? In Eaglesmere, Pennsylvania. Hmm. And she believed, don't do you know time out for ginger or something like that, but do the great plays because you learn. So, uh, my first year there, I did Richard. I did Lady Anne and Richard the Third. I did Undine by Giraudoux. I did um, The Cave Dwellers. And the next year I did Mary Stewart and Vi- uh, Viola and Twelfth Night. Um, Not your average summer theater fair. And she would have student directors. And then she would come in on the, <laughs> the night before we'd open and whip us all in shape. There was a story that she, that when somebody was doing Hamlet, this was Jake Dengel was doing Hamlet. This was before I was there. They finished the dress rehearsal and Miss Krause came down and stared at them for 45 minutes. And then her first word was, well, Dale, the set has to go. That's how they started fixing. Mm. But she she would, and then she would write up the critiques of each perform of each play the, the the preceding week. And I still have those critiques, and they're some of the most valuable things I've ever had about what theater is and what we're supposed to be doing and what was wrong with this. And she, one of her things about my mind and Undine was, she said that I, and I guess it was from the dancing that I had it all in my body, but I didn't have a good enough voice. So mm. I started working on my voice so that I had a malleable voice. 
you said something very interesting, that you would improv the show that was going to be two weeks away, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you'd rehearse the show that was going to be a week away. Mm-hmm. So that strikes me as a rather modern approach to to some very serious texts. Yes. Was that unusual at the time, or this was just part of her technique? This was part of her. Hmm. She she was she and she those of us who got her and loved her and were influenced by her know that we we have really deep passionate almost religious feelings about theater from her. Hmm. We can't take it lightly. We were very serious about it. <laughs> well, I could probably spend an hour just talking to you about her, but yes. but now let's. So you did the summer theater, so and then I came on. to New York, and then you came to New York. Um, how long did it take you to get work? I don't. Uh, I can't remember. Not not that long. Uh, the first thing I did was an off Broadway musical, a revival of OK. I couldn't. You see, in those days, you couldn't audition for a play unless you were in the union. And you couldn't be in the union unless you'd done a play. So how anybody got through this, I don't know. But you could, yeah. But you could audition for a musical. But I wasn't a singer. I was cute, you know. I was cute, but I didn't. But you could audition for the chorus. Mm -hmm. But you'd never get in the chorus because you had to sing really well. But if you had a cute voice and you could do cute parts, you could get the small part. So I auditioned for this okay, which was a cute little six characters. Um, The chorus were called Cottontails, and we were nineteen twenties little. Babes, and Linda Lavin was another one. We were in our first show together. And then the next show I did was uh, South Pacific because the girls in the chorus of the wax or the nurses in the South Pacific are not great singers. They're Hmm. more personality. And then from there, I got my first dramatic role, which was Toys in the Attic, the tour, the national tour of Toys in the Attic by Lillian Hellman. So how long did you tour with that? I think it was about eight months. Hmm. And you got that – now, again, because someone saw you and said – Someone – I got an agent. Mm-hmm. Someone – I don't – I think – I don't remember how I got an agent. But Howard Hoyt must have seen me in OK. Hmm. And he worked for Lester Schur, Louis and Lester Schur, who were legendary Hollywood, New York agents in those – Old, in the prehistoric days that we're talking about. Hmm. And uh, Howard, they sent me for the audition for Toys in the Attic, which was done originally by Rochelle Oliver with Jason Robards and Anne Revere and uh, uh, Irene Worth. Hmm. And this was the national company. So that's how I got that. Hmm. And then in New York, you made your Broadway debut in 1962 in, have to say, a little-remembered play, the Moon Besieged. Yes, I always hated that they put that in because I was supposed to be the understudy for Ellen Madison and Kathy Hayes. And at the last minute, they said, well, they need somebody to do a, sta- uh, a square dance. So I made them put a hat on me so nobody would see me and made them promise that I was not making my debut as a, in a square dance in The Moon Besieged. And now it's on some IDBB, whatever those things are. But, you can't get away with but you were. In, but when you say you made them promise... A distinguished director, Lloyd Richards. I know. I don't think he had anything to do with it. I think it's all those people who put things in things and, huh. you know. So, so so your debut was nothing more than being an extra in dance. a dance. Yes. So then we'll move quickly past it. Yes. So how did you come to be 
a replacement uh, in the original company of Barefoot in the Park. Because, because I was up in Westport, Connecticut doing a play called The Strangers by a man named Andrew Rosenthal. Now, I mention this because it had the grandmother and her daughters and the granddaughter and the maid. Now, the grandmother was Cornelia Otis Skinner. Oh, God. The mothers, the, her daughters were Jane Wyatt, Constance Cummings, and Peggy Conklin. And I was Constance Cummings' daughter the granddaughter, and the maid was Margaret Hamilton. Oh, my gosh. And this is the playhouse, Westport Country Playhouse? Yes. And I couldn't go to the opening night party because Lester Schur had gotten me – oh, no, I think I wasn't with them anymore. Anyway, somebody had gotten me an audition to uh, because they were going to replace the standby in Barefoot in the Park. So I came into town and I went – I got the job. And I started rehearsing and – Four days, four, no, I'd been over the third act twice mm-hmm. when they said, and it was the first day, as a standby, I didn't have to stay at the theater. It was the first day I was not going to stay at the theater. And who and were you standing by for? Elizabeth Ashley. Okay, the original. And uh, they said, Liz's back is out and you have to go on. And I said, here's a dime. Call my boyfriend and tell him to go in my apartment and get my shoes because I couldn't wear her shoes. And I went into her dressing room, and she was writhing in pain, but she was worried about me, and I was worried about her, so I wasn't, didn't have time to be nervous. Hmm. And they put the clothes on me, and I, they, I stood there, and Barefoot was a big hit. And when they said, ladies and gentlemen, tonight the performance is going to be – you heard everybody groaning. <laughs> and I and – I, but I still – was sort of in a zone and I went on and I did the first piece of business and I thought I don't remember what's next and I'm 30 seconds into this and I have a three act play to go through or two act no it was three act play and I went and I remember thinking if I just sit down right here and cry everybody will understand (laughs) and I sat down and I was about to cry when I saw the suitcase which was the next piece of business that I had and I remember – and I never forgot another thing the whole night. Huh. And Bob Redford and Mildred Natwick and all of them they, to whom I had just been introduced were worried to death. They looked terrified and I was by this time cool and I was sort of you know, giving them the, the – it's going to be OK. Well, I've heard people say when they go on for the first time as, as a replacement or as an understudy, getting through the first performance, you get through on adrenaline and everybody's pulling for you and everybody's there. It's the second time you have to go on yes. that you really got to think about it. I, I guess. I don't have any memory of it because from then on, uh, you know, uh, I played it a bit of times and then Liz – who became, we're very good, good friends, but she, she went off to do a movie and she was supposed to come back. So I, I went on for her for this whole summer hmm. and then she didn't come back. She went to do Ship of Fools and I uh, stayed on. Hmm. So that's how that happened. So then two years later, you are again standing by. Well, the how, yeah, they, they asked me if I would stand by in Cabaret. And I thought, well, I, w- I knew it wasn't good to keep standing by unless you just wanted to work. Mm-hmm. But I wanted more than work. I wanted to be a great artist, a great actress, Miss Grouse after all. So I thought, well, this is a musical. I'll try that. So I started rehearsing. That's when I had four rehearsals. Hmm. I'd, been, I'd had four rehearsals and it was Friday and I went to the, I went to the uh, Russian Tea Room to celebrate. Had four Moscow – three Moscow meals. And the next day, 
I was pretty hungover. <laughs> and they called and I was on for the matinee. Wow. And I don't know how I did it. But but again, I wasn't nervous because it was just – there was no time for nervousness. Had you – you were you were the original standby in that, yes? Yes, but they did so, not have a standby. Originally, they would just had an understudy. So you weren't there through the rehearsal no, process. No. So mm-hmm. it was really a case of coming in and just – And Jill Haworth, mm-hmm. who was the uh, young English girl who was playing the part, she was having a lot of vocal trouble. And they thought, we better get a real sta- a standby and not just an understudy. Mm-hmm. And that's how that happened. Then I played that. I went on for her. In Within a year, I played it over 100 times. Hmm. And then at a certain point, you actually took over the role? No, I didn't. They asked me to. They asked me to. But I thought by that time, I was wanting to be a serious actress, remember? And I'd done it for a year. I thought, I don't need to do this. Big hit musical. Not frothy fair. But that wasn't serious enough for you. Well, I guess, I don't know. I think it was stupid on my part. But I think I thought, I've done this. I spent a year in it. It's now time to go on to something else. And I did. I went into Shakespeare in the Park. 1968, in rep, I gather, Henry Mm -hmm. IV, parts one and two. That's correct. Um, Jerry Friedman directed and Stacy Keach as Falstaff and yes. Sam Waterston as Prince, as Prince Hal. Hal. So, and Barry Primus as Hotspur and I was Lady Hotspur. So what what was the experience now of getting to play Shakespeare in what then was still – I mean the shows in the park were still a relatively new phenomenon. Well, we uh, – this was the second – production I'd done. I had done somewhere we skipped, and I don't remember when it was, but somewhere mm. in the prior time I had done uh, As You Like It. Oh, I hadn't come across that. And, yeah. And in those days, you had to sort of run over to this little thing on the stage to say your lines. Hmm. You didn't have any mics. By the time we got this, mics were in the little, what we called, tumpties. Oh, you so go there over was, and say, oh, my Lord. There was I a box do it. Yes. that had them. Uh-huh. By the time we got to the Henrys, we had big microphones that we stuck in our bras in the front that you got a lot of police signals and stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh, yes, we did. We did them in rep. We did part two, part one one night, part two the next. And one night they had both of them. They started in about 6.30 in the afternoon. And when we finished part one, there was a picnic with candles. Everybody had candles. And part two, we finished We finished the whole thing about one thirty in the morning. Wow. Yeah. But, of course, now those, quote, unquote, marathon kind of theatrical performances, whether it's Coast of Utopia yeah. or, or the Norman Conquests, people love that. Yes. The actors are energized for it. Was it? That kind of a special experience? It was very special. I don't even think they'd done – they might have done the War of the Roses in London. But I think it, this was the first time I think that it had been done here. Hmm. And it was certainly fun for us to play those plays because they were a continuation. So we got to have the whole scope of the characters. Right. And Lady Hotspur, Jerry Friedman had, you see, been a student of Miss Grouse's hmm. before me. And before uh, – so to work with him was just – you know, was continuing her legacy. It was particularly wonderful. And um, he had conceived of this idea of Lady Hotspur being pregnant, which she isn't necessarily. Hmm. It doesn't say she isn't. Um, and it was particularly uh, moving because this was, the, this was the year that Bobby Kennedy was killed. Right. And, and Ethel was pregnant. You remember? 
mm. when he died. And so when I came on in the second act, second play in black, mourning, but hmm. obviously pregnant and saying to my father, don't go to the war, stop war, stop wars. It was quite profound well, to be and, able to do. And certainly the public did not shy away from political overtones right, in right. the work that it was right. doing. Yeah. I have to say I was a little surprised and I'm just curious. Stacy Keach as Falstaff, Sam Waterston as Prince Hal, and I looked it up. They're maybe a year apart in age. Well, Stacy, Stacy's great, a great actor, but his particularly wonderful ability is his chameleon-like. He, you, I, you could, you just totally believed that huh. he was that old guy. He had a lot of. Um, he was padded. Padded. <laughs> and we were talking today, I was talking to you earlier about playing in the park in this weather, uh. in the hot weather. And, of course, we had bags of ice that we would put in the smalls of our back. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, he was wonderful. Stacy was his, – his chameleon-like, his ability to disappear and create characters is phenomenal. Hmm. Well, again, both both Sam and Stacy were stalwarts of yes. that era yes. of of Shakespeare in the Park and the New York Shakespeare Festival yes. in general. So yeah. uh, it was James great, Ray was great there, time yeah. to be there. Um, then skipping forward, applause. Now a brand new Broadway musical, uh, whereas with Cabaret. Although it was new, you weren't there from the first rehearsal. Was this, in fact, the first new musical that you'd gotten a chance to be a part of? Well, I wasn't there either. I wasn't there at the beginning. I was in California. I, I, oh, I remember. Hal Prince flew me in to audition for company. And I was living in Los Angeles. I was doing television. I was – Miss Krause had – left this world and I was hoping she didn't notice I was doing television because I was doing television so that I would be in a position to do the plays I wanted to do but I didn't know if she'd understand that <laughs> anyway uh, he flew me in to audition for company and I finished my audition I was coming out of the stage door and this man said oh what are you doing here pass by and I said oh I'm, I just did an audition she said I'm the stage manager for applause they wouldn't fly you in, but we wanted you to audition. Will you come and audition? I said, sure. So I went to audition, and it came down between me and someone else. And I had to go back to Los Angeles, so they gave me the script, and I flew back with the script, and then I heard they took the other person. So, okay, I had a television pilot I was doing for my sins and praying Miss Krause would forgive me from her theater in the sky. And when the pilot was over, when I finished doing the pilot, I'd gone to O'Ray's Beauty Salon on Santa Monica Boulevard. I was having my hair shampooed, and they brought the phone to me with my head in the sink, and it was my manager saying they want you to fly to Los Angeles, uh, to New York, uh, to Baltimore. They're going to replace the girl in applause. Hmm. Now, actually, we, we talked formally about Bill Craver, who's now the – treasurer of the wing, right, yes, at this point. Bill Craver had told me that he was going to the gypsy run-through of the play. Down in Baltimore? No, before oh, it went before to Baltimore. before it went out of and town. And he, he told me, he said, it's pretty good, but he said, I think the girl is having 
I think they're having trouble with her. I said, oh. And I went on with my life. So now my head is in the sink, and they're saying, well, they want you to come to Baltimore. I said, when? They said, tonight. So I left that day, and I arrived, and I went to the play, and I saw it, and I... I don't know if I would have known if I was in it what what it needed, but seeing it, I knew exactly what was needed, I thought. And I took over the next day, and again, on Monday, I started rehearsal, and I went on on Thursday night. So I did another fast one. But so, the oh, sorry, no, yeah. I was going to say, how much time did you have with it out of town overall? Well, I had my four rehearsals. I just wanted mm-hmm. to say this one story. Yeah. And when they put me, because you remember, you may remember that Eve Harrington starts in the audience and comes up on stage to get her Tony Award. That so they put me out in the audience. Said, "Good luck." This is after my f- <laughs> four days of rehearsal. <laughs> Good luck. And I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm going to be. I don't. I don't know. And they, I didn't have. I had short hair, and there had to be a, cha- a change of time. So they decided to put me in a turban. So that I could look sophisticated, and then when we go back in time, then I have my little short hair. So I'm sitting in the audience in Baltimore at the Morris A. Mechanic Theater with a turban on my head, left alone. (laughs) And I'm thinking, I'm going to get up and – I'm not going to cry this time. I'm just going to get up out of the door and go home to North Carolina and forget it. At which point they said, ladies and gentlemen, tonight the performance of Eve Harrington will be played by Penny Fuller. And, of course, Eva Harrington is an understudy, and, I, and I'd done my understudy, and I thought, I can't go because i got to find out what the end of this story is. So mm-hmm. I didn't leave. And uh, so I played it. We, we finished there, three performances there, and then we went to Detroit, and then we came into New York. Hmm. So ultimately, by the time it came to New York, you'd had time with the part. You'd yes. really been able and to. They do, but they were, they were doing other things to the play, too. By this Tell time. me. Now, of course, because we're looking at it from from so many years on from the original film, when applause was being done, was the film already as revered as it is now? The film? Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, so even because at that point, you were less than 20 years out from the original film. Yes. But it it had already been considered a oh, classic. Yes. It was a classic, especially in the theater, because it is the great theater story. So... There's so much said now about adaptations of Hollywood properties. Was there anything were, – were people really gunning for it, saying how can they touch this material? How can they, they musicalize such a great film? I really can't answer that. I don't know because I wasn't in it at the beginning, right. as I say, and and then I was busy playing catch up, so I wasn't that aware that much aware of that. I think people, I don't. It's such a classic story, and it's such a. I'm sure it's. I'm sure there's some myth, some myth that it it reflects in some way, just like the hero's journey of the, of. of um, that that uh, Joseph Campbell talks about the man's story of, I'm sure there's some myth of the older woman and the younger woman that because it it touches it touches on a deep psychological level the story of the the aging person and the young person taking over 
it, whether it's a theater or something. Well, it's certainly a theatrical story. And, of course, as I said at the beginning, there's an irony, and you've pointed it out again, but you weren't a scheming understudy fighting to get into the role. You you got put in. Your story, not quite, but might have been closer to 42nd Street yes, than to All yes, About Eve yes, if, we, yes. if we want to look at precursors. Yes, so yes. that's, you know, it's, it's, it's just fascinating the way it, right. it played out for you. It was a big hit. And Lauren Bacall was and playing Lauren Betty McCall, Davis. You're playing, so. But you do know that who replaced Lauren Bacall. No, I don't recall. Ann Baxter. Oh. Ann Baxter, who had played Eve in the movie. Wow. So I got to play it with Ann Baxter. That must have been a it trip. It was really a trip. Huh. It really was. She was wonderful to me, too. You've been working at that point for about 10 years, a little more perhaps. Probably, yeah. Um, being in a hit Broadway musical, certainly, I mean, you were involved in Cabaret. It was a hit, but as you say, you weren't there from the beginning. What What was it like in 1970 to be in a Broadway smash? It's interesting because... I have to tell you, if you look at the, um, I, I'm not answering your question, but I'll get there. Um, cabaret. Some people avoid them entirely. Feel free. <laughs> but cabaret, and I'm going back to Miss Krause here. Cabaret and applause, and the musicals I have done: Rex, um, A New Brain, uh, A Little Night Music. Uh, Do I hear a waltz? Um, Carousel, I've done. Most of those parts that I've done are acting parts. They 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 require a lot of of of, of um, they're not just singing roles. Well, yes, and and they're certainly okay. Is fluff. These yeah. are all. But I'm talking about when yeah. I started really right. coming into my own. And the musicals that I have done have all been. Uh, big roles, role, you know, tough mm-hmm. roles, not cute singing parts. And uh, so to be in applause at, in the 70s, in the 1970s, uh, playing this part was major. It was major. And I must say that in a funny way, uh, I heard this. I do not know. I was not there. But I heard that when it went around Sardis the day um, that Penny was finally going to get her own part to play in applause, that there, a cheer went up. Hmm. Now, I wasn't there, but I heard that from Richard Deakins who told me that. And that people had said that, that it was because I had been replacing and I finally had a role that was mine. And to, but to play, but it was tough because I was playing kind of the villain, the, the kind of, even though she sang, it was really the acty schmacty part. Mm -hmm. And so it was great. It was great, but it wasn't fun exactly. It was a. T- it was hard to be in that sort of negative place to play that part. Naya, you believe it? It's my time. Blah, blah. It was. It was hard. Hmm. It wasn't joyous, but it was joyous to be in it. But hmm. it was. You didn't go to a joy place. It was more than joy that that uh, Eve goes through. You just ran through a number of musicals that you've done, not all on Broadway, but I have to ask you about Rex, which is a show more spoken of than seen. Yes. Um, Certainly the pedigree going into it, 
you would look at and say Richard Rogers, Sheldon Harnick, Sherman Yellen, produced, I didn't realize, by Richard Adler. Um, and Roger you know, Berlin's first and production. Roger was, was involved and certainly Nicole Williamson, yeah. a major actor, mm-hmm. not noted for musicals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Rex ultimately was not a successful show. Mm-hmm. Was it a difficult experience being in the show? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> That's as much as I'm getting out of you? No. Yeah, it was tough. It was tough because there were uh, – I guess – you know there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of silver spoons in stirring the stew, you know, and there was a lot. Of, there, Nickel was not an easy, easy, easy team player, and um, lots of things. And it's a hard piece to do. It's you know to do a play about a man who's a king of England who has no son and he's got to get a son and he's got to kill his wives or divorce them or something to get one and then have it be a musical and not an opera. So I think that 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 was it, it was kind of trying to find its place. And I I think that's part of it. And I every there were Things each each of the expert people that you mentioned were all doing great work, but it somehow didn't come together into a Broadway musical. Mm-hmm. And was it a show where you were constantly being handed changes because oh, they yeah. knew it wasn't working and were yeah. trying to fix it? I remember at the Kennedy Center in the Opera House at the Kennedy Center, they, uh, I think it was Ed Sheeran, said to me, uh, he was our director at that point, he said. Uh, we have a new arrangement for your number, but there's no time to go over it. So you'll just do it tonight, you and Jack, Jay Blackton, the conductor. You, so we did the first time I ever heard the arrangement. With, uh, we did it. Yeah. Can I say that almost every story we're, we're talking about in every show, the continuing theme seems to be you're just thrown in there <laughs> without a lot of prep? It is true. No wonder I have all these bruises. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I get no wonder I don't get nervous. Yeah, but it's it's remarkable because it is the case of you've just got to do it. Yeah, and whatever you know. But you see, going back to Miss Krause, I was going to say you Ms. didn't Krause. grow up for Miss Krause, yeah. so you could she you could get prepared on with us this to stuff. be able to do anything. Certainly, you as you mentioned already, you were doing TV and you did TV work on mm-hmm. and off and film work. You know, throughout this period, we're focused really on theater. It seemed like there there was after Rex um, a little bit of a hiatus in terms of you were probably focusing more on TV and, and film. I was out there, yeah. And I did a lot of theater out there. Mm-hmm. I was a member. I, I did a lot of stuff I with the Mark Taper Forum. And the Almonds and the Music Center, and I was a member of the first uh, the repertory company that they were trying to start. That Ellis Rab directed uh, Twelfth Night and Chekhov and Yalta in rep. Hmm. So we would do Chekhov and Yalta one night, and then we would do Twelfth Night as the actors. And that was worse at, at the Taper, at the uh-huh. Mark Taper. And the Chekhov and Yalta is about the actors in the R- R- Moscow Art Theater. Hmm. So the next night, when we did Twelfth Night, we were the actors of the Moscow Art Theater playing the parts in Twelfth Night. Hmm. So the characters that we played the night before, I was playing Olga Knipper, who married Chekhov, but I was playing Olga Knipper playing in Twelfth Night. Hmm. 
Interesting. Yeah, and I, so I did a lot. I started two or three co- theater companies out there, and uh, or, or I didn't start them, but I was the founding members. And I did a lot of television. I, di- I did a lot of. I did. I got to do in television what I was trained to do, which is be. Uh, a, ca- a kind of a character actress, whereas in the theater I was a little bit more of a leading lady. Hmm. It was interesting that I got to do, and I, actually in L.A. on television I was kind of a blue collar mom, and in the theater they they do me more blue bloody, huh. a little bit. I do want to ask about two TV projects quickly mm. because of their theatrical base. You won an Emmy for Mm -hmm. the television version of The Elephant Man. And sadly, many people don't realize that the play, The Elephant Man, was done for television with essentially the original Bernard Pomerantz script. It was overshadowed ultimately by the the film version. Um, But you got to do the original piece um, with... The, the original leads with Philip yeah. Anglum and with Kevin Conway. Yeah, I did that on television. The tour, yeah. I did the tour. Oh, first I mm-hmm. did the, the national tour with Philip and Ken Ruda played it. Mm-hmm. But then they did it for television, and uh, yes, with Kevin Conway mm-hmm. and, and Philip Anglum. And you also got to do a cat on a hot tin roof for I television, did. also for director Jack Hofsis, who yes. had done yes. Elephant Man. Yes, um, I played May. And in quite a cast, Jessica yes. Lang, Tommy Lee Jones, and Rip Torn. So. Yes, and I, d- I was nominated for an Emmy, but I lost to, uh, what was her name? She's kind of a good actress, Kim Stanley, oh. who played Mama, Big Mama. <laughs> oh, in the yeah, same, in the so, same so production, the same. yeah. Wow, I'd missed that Kim Stanley had been in yeah, it. That must have, yeah. must have been something. Um, but I read somewhere that when you came back to New York, and you came back to New York to do theater in 95 at Manhattan Theater Club after what had been a New York hiatus, um, you you made a comment, I hope I, it was accurate what I read, that you almost needed to be invited back to New York. You felt you, felt you needed to be brought back into the community. Is that is that true? No. What I meant was that I didn't want to come back without a job. Aha. That's what I meant. I didn't know how to do it anymore. Hmm. You know, I didn't know how to be in New York because I'd been in L.A. I didn't know how to – I didn't know what the, the routines were. It had changed. I'd been gone for over 15 years. Hmm. It wasn't that I needed to be invited back because I needed to be invited. I wanted to have a job so that I'd have the justification to come back, which is what I wanted to do was come back. Hmm. So at that point, Manhattan Theater Club, these were in the city center space. Yes. They hadn't moved to Broadway. And you did two shows for them, Richard yes, Nelson called, play and a yes. Jeffrey Hatcher play. Yeah, they, they called me. I came back to see my friend John Glover in the opening night of Love, Valor, and Compassion. And I saw – and at the opening night party, the Manhattan Theater Club people said, oh, do you want to come to New York, back to New York? And I said, yes, as soon as my daughter goes to college, which was going to be the next year. And then about a month later, they called me. Manhattan Theater Club called me because the person – they were going to replace somebody in rehearsal. Here we go again. I just realized you're right. <laughs> God. Um, they And they said uh, this person is not comfortable doing a monologue. And they sent it to me and I thought, I can't leave my daughter. It's her senior year in high school. And I read the play and I said, what, when, when, when do you need me? <laughs> and this, is, this would have been three viewings, which this was three set viewings. up as monologues. As three monologues. Yeah. So I had, nine, I had nine days for that hmm. to do a 27-minute 27 27 monologue. Hmm. 
Hmm. But, but the singing and the night, uh, the, the stuff and the Shakespeare helped me. I didn't, I was used to, I, I mean, I was, uh, I guess, the, I don't know if the word's adept, but I was used to doing things where I didn't have to have a scene partner, mm-hmm. where my predecessor in the play was having problems with that, had never done that thing. But with doing soliloquies and Shakespeare and singing and stuff, I knew how to do it to the audience. Hmm. Now, with the time in California and with mm-hmm. the theater companies that you spoke of and certainly the TV and film, had you continued having opportunities to do musical theater during that period? No. So, I hadn't. I hadn't. I'd been doing mostly that. I was studying some singing. Mm-hmm. I was trying to. And then they flew me back here. That's right. They flew me back to audition for, what do you call it? The movie, William Holden. Big musical. Betty Buckley. Glenn Close. Um, you know, I'm Gloria Swanson. Oh, Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard. Oh, Oh, okay. For the they Lord, flew me, yeah. and I didn't. I couldn't sing it, so I well, went you back. You said William Holden. I was thinking of musicals that William Holden oh, no, was no, in. Oh no, I'm he sorry. Really threw me there. I'm sorry. Um, I couldn't sing it, and I went back to Los Angeles, and I started working on my singing. And, and a year later, I called Vinnie Liv, the casting director. I said, "I want to audition for you again," and he cried. He said, "I've never seen anybody work so hard." And you and I almost did it in another version, but he, I had worked hard enough that I had changed my voice and I was able to sing it. Hmm. And but I hadn't done any musicals. I'd been too busy. I was busy raising a child, doing starting theater companies, and doing television. It wasn't time. So you mentioned it glancingly, but Bill Finn's A New Brain. Bill Finn's style was certainly a different style of musical theater writing than you would have encountered earlier. And so that really was your reintroduction to doing musicals. It was. How is that for you? For reasons I will never know, he says he saw me in Cabaret. He's always wanted me to be in a show of his. Hmm. And so they asked me to do a workshop of it, and I was still flying back and forth. And I thought, no, I can't do it. And then later I came back to New York uh, after well, all the Manhattan Theater Club things and did a play for Lincoln Center called Wendy Wasserstein's An American Daughter. American Daughter. And they asked me if I would do a four-day workshop of this. And I said, sure. Well, they gave me the thing. And, I mean, it was totally different. In my day, you say, how do, uh, how do you how, play the song for me so I can hear it? Oh, I got it. And I hum, I'd, I could hum it. But this was stuff you had to count. And it was weird. And I, I did it. I did the workshop. I had no idea what I was singing about. And then they gave me the show. Hmm. And I remembered that they said to me, Okay, now it's time for your costume fitting. So I went for the costume fitting. They said, okay, you'll wear that suit. Now for your gown. I said, what gown? The hospital gown? They said, no, the gown that you play when you sing um, the the ballad for your, for your son. I said, um, the music still plays on. I said, well, what do you mean, the gown? I thought it was a hospital. I didn't realize it was a whole hallucination where I mean, I didn't know. I was too busy was trying to learn to count the music in Bill's, in Bill's head <laughs> yes, as yes. he was. Well, his character, we yeah. should say, was was recovering from the yeah. surgery. I thought that was one of the most extraordinary pieces of theater I've ever seen or been in, and I I am so sorry that it didn't 
hit the critics the way it hit me because I thought it was extraordinary. Well, I, I would have to say I agree with you. I'm oh, a great good. fan of Bill's yeah. and, and of Graciela Danielle's yes. and, and indeed of virtually everyone who is in that show. Yeah. So at least there's a glorious cast album that, yeah. that lives on. Um, I want to make sure uh, we have a few minutes to talk about dividing the estate. Now, you'd mentioned that uh, early in your career, that that Barefoot in the Park, you were standing by for Liz Ashley. Uh, Here we are. Oh, gosh, I've got to do some quick math. Um, But but – a number of years later, we'll just say, and here you are 64? playing. And here, well, yeah. well it was, it was uh, Barefoot in the Park with sixty four, and dividing the estate at primary stages with two thousand seven. So here you are, forty, 40 plus years, years on, mm. playing her daughter. Yes. <laughs> what was that like? Well, first of all, you know when people say, "Well, how did she feel?" I said, "Well, we're actresses." We're supposed to do that. That's what we want to do. We don't want to play the same part. We don't want to be typecast. It was fantastic. I loved it. I, I could play her mother. I'd be a different kind of mother, you know, but that's be the, I mean, that's what we're supposed to be able to do. And, and how is she going to play an 80-year-old matriarch? She's an actress. And I was playing her, I don't know how old I was, 60-year-old daughter or whatever, uh, who was sort of a quiet little mousy kind of lady who kind of held the world together for everybody, but everybody kind of just ignored her, Bowen mm. Lucille. It was fabulous. And Liz and I are very good friends, and we've played the same parts. She, uh, I went to see her in in something, and I said, I'm about to go play Glass and Menagerie. I'm going to play another one of your parts. And she said, well, let me just tell you something. She said, just think about this. Did she, did Amanda Wingfield, did she or did she not have 17 gentlemen callers? And I said, well, did your Amanda Wingfield have a 17 gentleman call? She said, yeah. I said, then so will mine. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I wanted to bring up, you, you mentioned Glass Menagerie, uh, and we talked early on about your, your dual hometowns. You have had the opportunity to play southern roles yes. at times. And in the case of, of Glass Menagerie, you even did it down in North Carolina. Yes, I did. Um, is there an affinity for falling back into that voice on stage, certainly dividing the estate is Texas. It's not. It's well, not but the it's not. It's, but but Texas. It's East Texas, which is real close to Louisiana. It's okay. not Texan. It's Texas. Mm-hmm. It's Southern. I think that the thing that I would say about that is again we mentioned earlier rhythms. The um, I I I just know the way I, without thinking. I just know the way certain things. Are said, mm. it's just it's it's rhythm, and I and I can't explain it. I know that you would say, uh, oh, I can't think of a single line now. Of course, I never think of anything. But but there are just certain things that you know how to say, where the where you would say it differently if you were not from the South, and, mm. you, and you can spot it. Well, to have been able to to play Tennessee Williams work and to be able to appear in Horton Foots, two of the great chroniclers right. of Southern life from a very different perspectives on it. Yeah. And in the case of Dividing the Estate, one of one of the last productions that Horton himself yeah. was involved in. Yeah. Did you did you get much time with oh, him? Oh I yes I did. He was just just the most lovely gentleman. And he's he's the most like Chekhov of I mean he's I think uh, our American Chekhov. Of, of just the minimalist 
writing, minimum of words that say volumes, like Chekhov. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that's a, a great, a great thing for an actor is to be able to play Chekhov or Hortonfoot or somebody like that who doesn't say it all in the words. Whereas the, you do with Williams, you've got the poetry. There's a different kind of of word play. And I was lucky too because I've done a lot of English parts. Hmm. And so I'm not limited to the southern parts. I wasn't remotely oh, suggesting I didn't mean, that. Yeah. No, I'm saying it to myself kind of like saying, well, I didn't mean to say that you said that. Yeah, but, <laughs> uh, but again, a, a great opportunity. So uh, – Love Lost and What I Wore for, for a little bit longer and anything uh, coming up? That- well, every year I go to the O'Neill, the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in the cabaret department and uh-huh. I develop a show and I teach. I teach the best I can of what I learned from one of my other great teachers that I mentioned before was David Craig, a man named David Craig who was Nancy Walker's husband and he taught he taught actors predominantly how to get back their power when they get into the tyranny of musical of the music mm-hmm. because we can go and do all the all that we want but when somebody's going to go one two three one two three one and you've got to do what you do so he developed a way to do that to help you do it and i teach some my my own uh, a humble version of what he taught with my collaborating teacher, Barry Kleinbord, who's a cabaret director and a composer and a lyricist. And we teach, we team teach um, uh, people at the O'Neill in the cabaret conference. And then I develop a show. This year, I'm going to do a show with someone that is, uh, we have followed each other's careers and have intertwined careers and have been mistaken for each other, though we don't understand why, Anita Gillette Hmm. and I. She did cabaret, for instance. And we're doing a show this summer called Sin Twisters. (laughs) And it has not yet been written. Otherwise, I would tell you what it's going to be. Well, (laughs) But it's going to be kind of a combination of who we are and where we've crisscrossed in our careers and so forth. Well, we'll look forward to that. And Penny Fuller, thank you for coming in here at the last minute and doing a great oh, downstage I'm so center. Glad. <laughs> Thank you, Howard. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we're a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.